0: The book of Revelation, chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, and tonight we're reading at verse number 12 down through verse 17. This is the third or fourth message in the series of studies in the book of the Revelation. And we have already looked uh, in, at two of the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches, and uh, we have considered them. Uh, and now, tonight, we look at the third in this series. I think you will find that, as we have said previously, uh, that John deals now with the things that are, that is, the churches. We have shared with you there are at least three to four different applications of these letters. There is, first of all, a, a, a present application, the application that applied to the church presently in existence at the time of the writing. For example, the letter to the church of Ephesus was written to the church that existed at that time, the church of Smyrna likewise, and also the church of Pergamos that we'll look at tonight had a very present application or view. There is a second view or application, as I mentioned to you, and that is a perennial view or perennial application, which simply says there is a message in all of these seven churches that can be applied to the church at any particular time, period, or slot in the history of the church and its ministry from Pentecost until the rapture of the church. There's also a third application, and that is a prophetic application. And we have tried to show you that all of these seven churches are distinctly revealing seven particular periods in the history of the church from its beginning, its ministry that is, the beginning of its powerful ministry on the day of Pentecost, uh, and until the very coming again of the Lord in the air for his church. We looked at the church of Ephesus, which was the backslidden church, the church that indeed had lost its first love, had had failed to love the Lord first in their lives. That was the apostolic church. And uh, we found that that very period of time covered uh, the first uh, 100 years of the ministry of the church on this earth, the church of Smyrna followed, And there is that period of the great persecution. The word Smyrna itself comes from the word from which we get our word myrrh, a very bitter perfume. It is a a perfume, uh, 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 an aromatic spice actually, that is often used in the burial of people. And so myrrh uh, comes from uh, the word Smyrna. Smyrna is the persecuted church, the suffering church. And yet the Lord Jesus said, I know thy poverty, but thou art rich. And what comfort that is to us. And then uh, we'll see as, the, as the, these churches unveil that the last church, the Laodicean church, in which period I believe we are now living, the last condition or characteristic of the church, professed church, before the coming of the Lord in the air in that moment that we have called the rapture of the church. And so we're living in that time now. But uh, now, tonight, we're dealing with the church of Pergamos. Yet, let me add one other. There is, as well, a personal application. That's the four applications or views that we have as we look at these churches of, uh, of Asia, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Now, as I've said, we have already looked at the church of Ephesus, which is the backslidden church, They were orthodox in creed and in deed, but yet they were orthodoxy on ice. Uh, They were following all the rigid rules, they were doing the right things, but the problem was their love had declined and Christ was taking a a second place uh, in their lives and in the ministry of the church. And so Ephesus, we saw as a church that was perhaps uh, theologically straight as a gun barrel, but they were as empty as a gun barrel as well. And then the church of Smyrna, as we said, was the poor rich church or the rich poor church. A paradoxical statement to say the least. And yet uh, uh, this church was rich in the grace of God. They were rich in the presence of God, rich in the power of God, rich in the sustaining strength of God in their lives. The Lord indeed promised them imprisonment for 10 days and yet showed them that uh, though uh, the the suffering and the trial would certainly come, it was a restricted time. There was a reason for it that they may be tried and certainly there's a personal application there. Often our lives are put to the test and also we can thank God that the Lord restricts the time period of that testing I'm glad that it doesn't last forever and forever, that things are not always as they are when we're under severe trial and testing and perhaps great times of persecution. Now then we come to the church of Pergamos and we look at verse number 12 and the message reads like this. And to the angel, and the word angel, of course, again I remind you, it's a reference to the messenger, comes the word angelion, which is translated messenger, And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Let me give you the meaning of the word Pergamos. The word Pergamos means elevated. Elevated. I think you'll see why the Lord chose this church with this name for this particular message. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication." So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Remember, or else, or repent rather, or else, I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth it. Now because of the time period in these Sunday night services and I don't want to wear you out, I want you to get as much of the truth as you can so if I should fail to touch on something in these series of messages that may be a question to you, feel perfectly free to ask me or to jot down a note and uh, ask the question and I'll do my best to answer it. If I can't answer it, I'll just simply tell you I don't know. I'll be that honest with you. So I hope you'll remember to do that. Now then here we find in Pergamos what I think we could safely and rightly call the compromising church. The compromising church. And I think you'll see why indeed we call this church the compromising church. Pergamos was the capital city of Mysia, which was a Roman province in the, in the northwest corner of what is known as Asia Minor, uh, 25 miles inland, actually, from the sea. It was a religious city. It was not a religious city, but it was a wealthy city. It was a very fashionable city. In other words, if you had lived and gone through Pergamos, perhaps your first uh, impression of Pergamos would have been of a very thriving, a very prosperous, a very affluent city, But though the city was a wealthy city, it was a wicked city. And strangely and oddly and sadly enough, oftentimes wickedness and wealth often go together. That should not be. But yet oftentimes you'll discover that that's true. For many times when people are increased with wealth and goods, even as Israel did, they forget God. I've known many a person who has been so faithful in serving God, honoring God, walking with God, witnessing for the Savior, and yet they gain a little increase in the world, and then you begin to see them drift away, drift away, until finally their lives are nil as far as serving God and being an honor and a glory to Him through their faithfulness. Now this city, though it was wealthy and fashionable and affluent, The city was also a center of education. There was a library, it is said, in Pergamos that had over 200,000 volumes in that very library itself. And so people were very knowledgeable people undoubtedly if they used uh, the source of material that they had been given. Perhaps this is only second to uh, the great library in the city of uh, Alexander. But it's also a very religious city. Not religious in the sense of Christian, for those who were Christian were in the very minority, and might I add, where they have always been. Real born again Christian, never been in the majority. The Lord Jesus himself never told us we would be. He rather said, straight is the gate and narrow is the way, and few there be that go in thereat. But on the other hand, broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there be that go in there. So you have the contrast of the few against that of the many. And so here in the city of Pergamos, there was a minority of those who were followers of the Lord Jesus. The greater majority of people in Pergamos were heathen, pagan people. There was in the city of Pergamos uh, uh, the statue and the god Zeus who was known as the king of the gods. Also in this city was a, a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of fertility, the goddess of, uh, of, 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 of beauty as well, of love and beauty. And you know what goes along with that in the area of heathen religious practice. Also in this very city, there was the worship of the god as- Asculapius, who was the God of healing. The God of a healing. And so there were many gods. Also there's a temple to Octavius. Who was a Roman emperor. And it was required of the people and the inhabitants of Pergamos. That once a year they should go before the temple of Octavius. And there declare openly that Caesar was Lord. That Caesar was God. That was required of every citizen. Now... You can imagine what that would mean to those who lived in that city who were born again Christian. Required under law and under the government of the city of Pergamos to go bow and make an open confession that Octavius Caesar indeed was God. So here these who lived for the Lord Jesus in the city were indeed in a very precarious and a very dangerous position. Now, note if you will also in these verses that the Lord said he knows where they dwell, where Satan's seat is. Verse 13. Literally the word seat is the word throne, where Satan's throne is. You see, we've got an erroneous idea about the devil a lot of folks have, and that is they believe his throne is in hell. I'll tell you something, he hadn't even been there yet. Somebody said, well, uh, that's where the devil is. Oh, no. The Bible reveals that he is the prince of the power of the air. My friend, he is on this earth. And I'm not talking about evil with the D left off. I'm talking about a personal devil, a real personality, as real as God himself is real. And so Satan's throne here on this earth is said to have been here in this very city of Pergamus. John, three times in his writing, refers to the devil as the prince of this world. Paul refers to him in the letter of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, or verse number 4, as the God, small g, the God of this world, that is, this world system. So he is worshipped, however, in that sense of purpose. And yet he is worshipped even by many in our enlightened 20th century in the form of many a god. Oh, we don't have gods of gold and as such that we go and bow before, but there are hundreds of familiar gods that people bow before today. The god of pleasure, the god of possession and money, and if you don't believe many a person worships money and possessions, you start fiddling around with their money and you'll find out uh, where their worship is. And yet the truth is, that Satan is behind the whole system where men bow before these gods the God of education, the God of religion, the God of politics, the God of power, the God of lust, the God of technology. And yet Satan behind it all drawing people unto himself and men are worshipping the very Satan behind it unbeknowings perhaps even as much so as those in Pergamos were worshipping him. So this religious city I think you'll find is the most likely place where you'd find the devil. You see, we got a crazy idea. Again, we got an idea that the devil lives down at the road house, the honky-tonk, the beer joint, uh, down at the gambling house, the Ill, house of ill fame and prostitution, and that's where the devil lives. I don't think the devil even visits those places. I'm going to tell you why. He's already got that bunch hooked. He don't have to bother them. They're hooked on the flesh. They're hooked on the excitement of the pledge of sin. And yet the devil, I think you'll find through scripture, thrives and his greatest activity is found in religious circles. That's his cloak. In fact, the devil is a religious personality. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to exalt himself above God. He wants the following of men and thus multitudes are following him today. You see, things like communism and atheism are outspoken enemies of God. But religion comes along and says, all of us are going to the same place. Buddha, the Muslims, Islam, uh, the religions of modernistic persuasion in our country. All of them and say, all this is the way. And I'll guarantee you, you'll find the devil there. And I think one of the other places you'll find him is in the seat and the place of instruction. There are those who stand in classrooms who would teach young men and women, even in religious schools, that uh, it is very doubtful that there is a God... And certainly there is no such person as Jesus Christ. And certainly if there ever was such a person as Jesus Christ, he was not the virgin born son of God as they tell us. He was not resurrected from the dead. It is not necessary for his blood to have been shed for the salvation of sinners. There is a bunch of tomfoolery they say about this coming again of Jesus Christ. And yet it all comes out in a religious garb you see. And I think the most subtle of all is when a religionist begins to deny uh, to his students or to his members the fundamental truths of the Word of God. That's the most powerful of all persuasion. I want to go on record tonight as saying I thank God for men who stand in their classrooms, and I don't care what they teach, they stand for Christ, they stand for the Word of God, they believe it, and I I thank God every day of my life for Dr. Pleasure over here, teaching in our local college college. A man who believes the word of God. A man who loves the Lord. And I think we need to pray for our brother and ask God to give him strength and uh, fervor as he stands before those young students. And in many instances, some places they don't even have such an example uh, to follow of Christian character. Well, so here is the church. Now I want you to look at the character of our Lord as revealed in verse number 12. I've told you this, that in all of these seven letters... You will find that out of the vision that John saw of the Lord in the first chapter, there are many things. He had feet as a brass. Uh, uh, His eyes were as a flame of fire. His hair was white. Uh, You'll find also that he pulls out of that vision many of the character traits of our Lord and applies them to certain churches, to, to, uh, to these churches, as it applies to their particular case. And here you'll find that he addresses himself in the character as, verse 12, the sharp sharp sword with two edges. The sharp two-edge sword. Now in chapter 1, back at verse 16, John saw that sword proceeding from his mouth. Throughout the word of God, or especially in Ephesians, I'm thinking of now in chapter 6 and verse number 17. Paul tells us that the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So here I think you have a very symbolic representation of the Word of God. The infallible, unerring, authoritative, powerful Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, you'll find this about the Word of God. The Word of God chapter 4 of Hebrews verse 12 says is quick and powerful. The word quick means it is enlivening, it is life-giving. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Quicken them through thy uh, quick... uh, uh, Paul talked about being quickened from the dead. It is through the word of God, the living word of God, that he transforms the dead sinner into a living saint. Not only that he says it's quick, but he says it's powerful. I don't know of any more powerful thing than this blessed book. Now, when you give it out as a witness, you may think sometimes, well, it's not doing a thing in the world. I don't see any result. But as I've often told you from this pulpit, when you plant beans in the garden, you may not see any activity for a while, but something's going on down under that. Kind of like the little boy who was squirming in his seat, and uh, he found, he'd set out in recess and got some ants in his pants. And he just was squirming in the seat, and the teacher said, son, what in the world are you squirming around that seat like you are? And the little boy said, teacher, there's something going on down there that you don't know anything about. Well, in other words, when you give the seed of the Word of God, I want to guarantee you something's happening. Something's going on down there when you're not even aware of it. I was down in Picky, Mississippi, just north of New Orleans. A young lady came on Friday night of our meeting, and I'd been there all week. She came to the pastor's house and the pastor happened to be almost ready for the service that night and I was in the adjoining bedroom next to the living living room and uh, I heard this knock at the door and I heard the voice of a young lady just weeping and she said, Pastor, Pastor, I need so much to be saved. And the pastor was somewhat shocked, I could tell. And he said, what do you mean? I thought you'd already been saved. Didn't you join the church a long time ago? And the young girl said, yes, I joined the church, but I've never been saved. I've never been saved. And the pastor said, well, if you have never been saved, one of the old things do is you just get saved. And he opened the Bible, showed her I could be saved. And after that, I heard the pastor say, as they rejoiced together, he said, I want to ask you something, honey. He said, what brought you to the conclusion that you needed to be saved? She said, every night, that preacher's been here, for some reason, he's quoted Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. And he said, well, you've heard me say that a lot of times. Yes, she said it went in this ear and out the other. But she said, you know, every night I heard him say that. And she said, I went home on Tuesday night. I couldn't hear anything. As I'd lie down on my bed, try to go to sleep, all I could hear was, behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'd get up to eat the next morning. And the only thing I could hear was, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And she had to go to school and try to study. And all of a sudden, when I was reading my history book, I just, all of a sudden, that word had come, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And And she said, I came to realize that though I joined the church as a little girl, I had never in my life invited Jesus Christ in my heart. And she said, I just had to let him into my heart. Now yours are not only just a few days, but the word of God was given. And the Lord used that. And there's something going on down in many a heart when you give the word of God to men and women. So mother and dad, when you've taught your children the word of God, you may not see any immediate evidence, but I'll tell you something's going on down there that probably you don't know anything about. The word of God is what? It is quick and it is powerful. But watch the remainder of that verse. It is quick and it is powerful. Dividing to the asunder, dividing asunder the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow of the bone and it is, and is a discerner of the thought and the intent of the heart. So here you find that the word of God is not a quick and powerful, but it is a separator. It is a divider. It is also a discerner. It is a discerner of the heart, the intent of the heart, the thoughts of the mind. And so here there is this word that John says is going out. John records the words of the Lord, the sharp sword with two edges. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 14, that very word of God is seen not only as a saving, a dividing, a separating word, but it's also a word of judgment. Isaiah said it like this, he will destroy the wicked with the breath of his lips. With the breath of his lips he shall destroy or slay the wicked. In Revelation 19, on over in chapter 19, verse 15, you'll find this same portrayal again of the one who comes with a sharp two-edged sword. So it is a sword with sharp edges on both sides. It saves, but it also destroys. It is an instrument of life, but it's also an instrument of death. The Lord Jesus said, he that believeth on him is not condemned. But he uh, he that believeth not is condemned already. He that believeth is not condemned. You've got both sides of the sword. In the Lord Jesus, the very word of God, you've got death on one side, you've got salvation indeed to those who believe. Now, let me quickly come to verse 13. He also says again, thou holdest fast my name. Notice here the commendation that our Lord gives, the approval that he gives, and this is just like our Lord. Uh, He doesn't jump on us immediately immediately. And begin to condemn us about things without first complimenting us. If there's anything to compliment, that's a wise thing. Before you really try to straighten somebody out, you find some good points about them. You kind of soften up the territory a little. Don't just jump on a fellow uh, hands and feet and, and tongue and mouth. and uh, I mean, find something. The Lord Jesus found something here in these. And so he begins to commend them. Uh, he said, Thou holdest fast my name. Here, notice, were Christians dwelling. Christians dwelling under the shadow of Satan's throne, and yet they were unashamed to bear or to hold fast his own name. And oh, how we need that in this day, whether we're at work, whether we're at home on the campus, or whether we're uh, in the restaurant, we need to be unashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. I want you to listen to it. I know good and well where I'm coming from. I know some of you are ashamed to be identified with fundamental Bible-believing Christian people. Sometimes on the campus at school, some of you teenagers. You're kind of embarrassing to be seen around those who believe the Word of God. You're courting the world. Listen, never be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. Hold the banner high. The only people in the world who have any reason for any sense of shame are those who have denied the Lord Jesus and who are contrary to his wonderful truth and his wonderful word. Now, originally, names revealed what a man was. For example, we have just today the name Smith, Mary. Uh, the name Smith. But originally, uh, they were identified like coppersmith. When somebody said he's a copper smith, uh, you knew he dealt with copper. He is a silversmith. Well, that means he's a smith, but he deals in silver. He's a tinsmith, and so names had a way of revealing and unveiling what a man actually was. And so this verse says, "Thou holdest fast my name." What is his name? His name reveals his person. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. In that simple naming of our Lord Jesus, you have his sovereignty. That is, he is Lord, Master. You have also him as Savior, Jesus. And that's what the name Jesus means, Savior, the Lamb, the Sacrifice. You have also the name Christ, which simply implies the sent one. So what we, are having, what we have here before us is they held fast without turning loose of under any circumstance that name of the sovereign one, the savior, the sent one, who is indeed the Messiah, the promised one of God. The scripture tells us that men are saved by what? Believing on his name. Remember what the Philippian jailer had as a response to his question from Paul when he said, Ministers, what must I do to be saved? Acts 16.31, Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, Paul said to Roman, to the Romans, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There is salvation in the name of Christ. He has promised also his presence to those who meet in his name where two or three are gathered together in my name for all that he is. Gathering together for who he is? The virgin born, spotless son of God, the deity incarnate in flesh. He has promised to be there in their midst. He has promised to answer our prayers if those prayers are prayed in his name. Whatever you shall ask to the Father in my name, he shall give it you. Again, then, uh, uh, the Lord Jesus, his name is so precious, so valuable. We should hold fast that name. If all the world is going contrary to him, let's be courageous men and women enough and determine the dedication of our hearts that we stand firmly for him. Now, notice also verse 13 says, And hast not denied my faith. That is, they were faithful to the doctrine. They were faithful to the body of doctrinal truth relative to the Lord Jesus. Now he mentions here a man by the name of Antipas. As far as I know, history has no record of this man. Perhaps the world took no note of him. But our Lord took note of him and says, Antipas, my faithful martyr. I want to tell you something. The world may never put your name in headlines for the sacrifice and the service that you rendered. To our Lord Jesus. But bud one day your name's going to blaze in the headlines of glory itself. Because you've held fast to his name and you've not denied the faith. You see we live in a day when men by the hundreds and thousands are denying the faith. I was with a young man years ago in Evansville, Indiana. He met me at the airport. I'd been with him previously in revival meetings. In the meanwhile he had gone to a, a Baptist seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I came back for the second meeting. As we started from the airport, he turned to me and he said, Brother Waldy, he said, I feel like I need to tell you something. I said, okay, what is it? He said, uh, I don't believe like I used to believe. And I thought, oh, me, what, is, what do you mean by that? Well, he said, you know, we used to talk a lot about the virgin birth of Christ, that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. He said, I don't believe that anymore. I said to him, why don't you turn around and take me back to the airport? I'd rather go back to Georgia than I have to be here. Well, for some reason, I stayed. I thought, well, maybe I can help this fella. But nonetheless, here was a man who had departed from faith. He said, now I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, I got there in that seminary and those liberal professors just really, I mean, they just really brainwashed me. He said, that wasn't it. He said, I believed that all my life. I said, I doubt that. You know, if there wasn't a hell, For men who would destroy the faith of young men and women in the Lord God and His Word, if there were not a hell, I believe God Almighty would create one to put them in it. The truth is these men said we're faithful to the Word. They're faithful to the Word. And there are people denying that faith. Antipas died for that faithfulness. And so the name Antipas, by the way, means either for all or against all. We've often heard the story of Martin Luther, who is said to have been approached and said, Martin Luther, don't you realize the whole world is against you? And Martin Luther said, if the whole world is against Martin Luther, Martin Luther is against the whole world. Well, that wasn't original of Martin Luther. Tradition says that that started with Antipas, when he is demanded to make confession before Caesar that Caesar was Lord. And Antipas said in tradition, he said, I will not admit that Caesar is Lord, for there's only one Lord, there's only one God, and he is Jesus Christ. They said to take his life, they put him inside a hollow brass container. Put that on the fire until Antipas was roasted to death. What a death for a man to die for the cause of Christ. But I believe when we walk into heaven, we're going to see Anipas with that crown of life, the martyr's crown, because he stood true to our Lord Jesus. You say, boy, if I would lived back then, I think I'd have wanted to done that. I want to stand for Jesus. Are you willing to do that when people make fun of you, when the whole crowd running the other way, denying Christ, denying the Word of God? Or have you got, pardon me, the intestinal fortitude? Let me say it plain: Have you got the guts? You understand that? you got the real spiritual guts to stand up in front of a world who laughs and scorns and denies Jesus Christ and follows the world have you the intestinal fortitude spiritual to stand up and say listen if you cut my head off if you kick me out of the bunch if I'm not accepted if I'm not approved by this group I'm going to stand for Jesus Christ I may not be the most popular girl or boy on the campus but one thing I'm going to do I'm going to stand true to Jesus Christ that's the kind of character we need in this day and age and we need not only that character in young men and women (coughs) but we need that kind of character in mother and dad let me move on. I've got I to close. <coughs> For your sake, the Lord's cutting me off. All right. <coughs> My soul. Look at verse 14 and 15. Here he gives the condemnation. And i got to wind it up quickly with this. You've been kind. These people in verse 14 and 15 in Pergamos are not charged with believing or being one of the Balaamites they are not even charged with that they did not believe the false doctrine of the nicolaitans they're not condemned for that they have held fast to the faith the doctrine the word of truth but i want you to watch what our lord did condemn them for he condemned them because they were tolerating and they were permitting those of the balaamites And those of the Nicolaitans to remain in their fellowship and spread their false doctrine and their erroneous teaching. Now the word of God is very clear. When a man denies the faith, we are taught to avoid that person. We are taught to have no fellowship with those who indeed do not follow the doctrine of Christ. That's as clear as the nose on a fellow's face. It is throughout the word of God. We're to prove them. We're to retreat. We're to remove those from amidst. Paul urged strong action even uh, uh, toward those in the church of Corinth who were guilty of immoral practices, continued immoral practices. And he commanded them that they should, in real modern terms, excommunicate that person from their fellowship. Now here he talks about the doctrine of Balaam. He said you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Uh, you'll find uh, the story of Balaam back in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. To simply put it in simple, uh, just a concise, concise uh, form, let me say this about the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam seeing the futility of trying to curse Israel, if you remember the story, he suggested to Balak just the opposite. He suggested that he instead offered Israel hospitality in his kingdom. And as a result, Israel accepted that offer of hospitality and friendliness. As a result, they committed whoredoms. They fraternized in its heathen worship. They intermarried with the Moabites. And they forsook altogether the pilgrim character that God had intended for the Israelites to have. So what happened was this. They let down the bars little by little. You see, compromise doesn't come in a big wagon. It comes little at a time. We give in to this, we give in to that, we give in to the other. Though we know what's right, though we know what God teaches, we give in, we compromise, we make concessions. And a concession that a Christian makes on the fundamental truths of the Word of God cost him the loss of valuable principles. When a compromise is made, you always give up something. Now, it's not wrong to compromise on methods, but don't, all, don't ever compromise on principles, the basics. And I've said often we need to learn the lesson of the tall Georgia pine. When the wind blows, the top of that pine will bend, but it doesn't move its roots. It remains there. If it does, it's a goner. And so is this church, so is your family, so is mine. If we give way on those solid, known, basic, fundamental principles of the word of God. You see, the devil comes just, I mean, he just puts a little crack in the dam of your life. And little water begins to come out. And then before you know it's a big stream. And finally there's a bursting of the dam. So compromise works in that way. The word Pergamos, by the way, in the etymology of the word, if you were to go back. You'll find that also we get our English word, polygamy or from this word Pergamos. Simply, it refers to the mixed marriage of the church with the world. Now, the period of the church, prophetically, of the church Pergamos, was from about the year 300 up to the year 500 uh, A.D. A- 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 now, here's what happened in that period, if you'll check history. You'll find that in that period of time, around 312 A.D., there was a fellow by the name of Constantine, Constantine faced one day a terrific battle, to make the story short. And it is said, traditional, well this is actually, I don't know, but this is what I heard, that he saw a vision in the sky. And there appeared a flaming cross in his vision. And beneath that cross was written the words, with this conquered." As a result, Constantine required that every person professed Christianity in his kingdom and under his rule. Literally, he baptized in mass numbers, hundreds and thousands of his own soldiers and declared them, as he sprinkled a little water on them, he declared them Christian. So as a result, the church began to let down and say, Hey, look here, uh, our, our government leaders are Christians. So there became as a result a merger of church and state. And so you got, as a result of that, you've got a weakening of Christian principle. And that's the thing that God's son was so disturbed about in the church of Pergamos. They had compromised, they'd given down on the basic fundamental principles, and they were weakening their stand and their testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. I think today we see the ugly outcome of that in what's known as the modern ecumenical movement, where everybody joins under one roof. Today, they're call, and it's been talking about it for years, and it's becoming more and more. And by the way, before we get through this study of Revelation, you're going to see how it's going to come to pass. How the world will join as one, not only in its world system, but in its religion. There'll be a one world organization, politically, religiously. Right now, uh, there are those who talk about let's all get on one roof the Buddhists, the Muslims, the Christians, uh, everybody's getting on the roof. And even today, we have a weakening of the testimony and the effectiveness of the gospel by many who in evangelism call in those to help in their campaigns that are on the platform, be counselors who are not even Bible-believing Christians. Many of them are Roman Catholics. They insist they go back to their own church. I will tell you that's a weakening of the principles of God's Word. It is a weakening. And any time you let down in one little degree and give the devil an inch, he'll take a mile. So here is the church in Pergamos. Now also he said, he said uh, the Nicolaitans. He said, uh, I, I hate this doctrine of uh, the Nicolaitans. I want you to look back in chapter 2, verse 6, and I've got to close right now. Look in verse 6 of chapter 2. And as he writes to Ephesus, he says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now he didn't say I hate the Nicolaitans. He said I hate their deeds. But look here at Pergamos. The deeds of Ephesus have now become doctrine in Pergamos. Now follow what I'm saying. Here's what happened many times. People start acting in a certain way. They come to read an old-fashioned Bible, or hear an old-fashioned bible believing preacher, and he tells them the truth. But they say, hey, that's not my lifestyle. I'm going to live like I want to live. First thing you know, you know what's going to happen? He's going to find somebody that's written him a new Bible that's going to suit his belief and okay what he's doing. And we've got a lot of modernists and liberals who have given out paraphrases and so-called translations today that have not done justice to the original text of the Word of God. Many of them have left out truths of the virgin birth. They've ignored the fact of the blood of Christ. And so you're in danger when you do that. But here's what people do. They set up a lifestyle, they set up deeds in their life, and if they can find a preacher or a Bible or anybody else who will condone what they're doing, boy, it's hallelujah. You're my kind of fella, and that's my kind of religion. So the deeds often become doctrine, and it did in this case. The counsel that he gives them in verse 17 he that, or verse 16, repent, he said, or else. The final word of Jesus to the church, not going to all the world. The final word that's recorded is repent or else. Repent or else. I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice the change in pronoun. He said, you repent or else I'm going to come and fight against them. He said, if you let that bunch hang around and you support them and you encourage them and you let them into your fellowship, he said, I'll have to come and deal with them myself. So we do an injustice to men when we admit those who do not believe the word of God and the truth of the Bible into the fellowship, into the activity uh, as far as leadership. Now, anybody is welcome. I'm talking about leadership. So you get in trouble with God when that's the case. Now then he said, Repent, or I'll come to thee quickly. Fight against them with a sword. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith in the churches. Over and over again, you're going to hear this appeal, this call. Hear what he's saying. To him that overcometh will I give to Eve, to the hidden manna. And I'll give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. A lot of discussion about the white stone. There are many things that have been used in relation to it. It is said in some instances, if a man was convicted and condemned, he received a black stone. If he's acquitted and received, he received a white stone. But he said, I put in that white stone a name. I don't know, it may have some reference to an, an outgrowth of the old uh, uh, jewels that the priest wore. And upon all of those stones were written each name of the tribes of Israel. Every one of them, the 12 stones, the names are inscribed. But the Lord says this, if you're an overcomer. If you'll stay true, he said, listen, I'll give you a stone that's white. You're you're completely accepted in Christ. You've been cleansed. And I'll give you a new name that no man knows but the person I give it to. What's your name going to be? I don't know. I wonder if it'll be overcomer. I wonder if it'll be conqueror. I wonder if it'll be victorious. All but to know this, that our Lord accepts us fully in His Son. You've been kind to listen, and I've taken a little longer time than I intended tonight, but I hope you've gotten the truth of what I've said. Let's stand together for prayer. We're going to sing a couple of stanzas of invitation. There may be some of you here tonight who are not saved. You're not ready to meet the Lord. You've never invited Him into your heart. You may have been like... Many of us, you may have been like me, who have known and like the young girl I told you about in, down in the, uh, Mississippi, you may have joined the church, but you never really let Jesus Christ in your heart. I want to tell you, join the church, won't get you into heaven. It won't give you that white stone of approval before God. But if tonight you realize you've never been saved, if you'll ask Jesus Christ in your heart, he'll save you. And tonight, if you're a child of God, you've been compromised with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Why don't you, by the grace of God, take a stand tonight and say, Lord, if hell freezes over, if everybody else walks away, not like Peter, but Lord, by your grace, I'm going to stand true to you. I want to dedicate myself anew to stand for Christ. And then maybe some of you are here and you've already been saved, but you've never come for baptism. You need to be obedient to the Lord in that. I'm going to ask you to come as we sing. Perhaps somebody else tonight, you wish to unite with our church by statement, by letter, or for baptism. I want you to come. Meet me here as we sing, Just as I am without a plea. Come on while we sing.